0: Welcome back to The Crux. This is Gary Sheffer, a professor of public relations at Boston University. I'm here with my friend, Mike Fernandez. I, Mike, I was just remembering that you you came up with the name of this podcast, now in its 107th episode, many years ago, uh, when you were here at BU, The Crux of the Story. Why don't you remind our listeners what it's, uh, what it's about?
1: Well, it's basically to try and capture the essence of what's driving culture, politics, and business. um, and, And that's communications. And communications in a variety of realms uh, not just sort of what we think of as as communications inside of a large company, uh, but communications as it comes to news. Uh, we've had uh, biographers, we've had uh, authors, we've had uh, a White House photographer, uh, we've had the editor in chief of the Wall Street Journal, um, so as well as chief communications officers, chief marketing officers, as well as uh, some some key academics and researchers. Uh, so, so that's it in a nutshell. It's about trying to better understand on one level communications across all those uh, all, all those different arrays, but also doing so in a way that keeps our eye on on what's happening in, in, in culture and news generally.
0: That's a great summary, Mike. and, and, and uh, I want to jump into one area that you talked about, which is news. Um, you're the head of communications for a big global company. How do you get your news these days, Mike?
1: Well, it used to be that I got news by watching three television sets and, and, and reading, you know, some very few publications. It's a little bit different today. Now, there's some standbys that are still there. Wall Street Journal, New York Times, uh, Financial Times. Uh, now, for me, working in Canada, also Financial Post. Uh, but I frequent a a lot of places online and get news summaries based on topics and issues that matter to me. I've used news and information aggregators, like the Real Clear properties that I think now are owned uh, by Forbes. Real Clear Politics used to be one of my favorites. I subscribe to a number of RSS feeds, really simple syndication that automatically send updates uh, to people like me who want to stay informed about an organization. I listen into a number of podcasts uh, about news in particular like New York Times the Daily uh, number of podcasts both U.S. and global and Canadian. Uh, I track Axios, Politico, Washington Post Online, Semaphore, a lot of social media from Twitter, now X, uh, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn. The point is to understand and change with the times. Uh, we need to be attuned to them. And, and I should add, given our guest, uh, I love Substack.
0: <laughs> well, let's jump right into it. Our guest is one of the most popular Writers on Substack. Judd Legum, his uh, newsletter, I guess is what we call it, Judd, is uh, popular information. Uh, And let me give you, before we talk to Judd and and his journalism about his journalism, let me give you a little bit of his background. He holds a law degree from Georgetown, Mike. Mike's a Georgetown grad.
1: Oh, yes, (laughs) accent.
0: And after a few years practicing law, he spent a decade obsessively writing about politics. As the founder and editor of Think Progress, which offered political insights and commentary, Judd, Judd later became the research director for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. And then in 2018, I, I think, Judd, you were one of the first folks on Substack, uh, publishing a new, uh, which is a new publishing platform for writers and journalists. Popular information, uh, his newsletter is uh, published four times a week. And Judge says, "quote unquote," it's unfiltered, unbought, and unbossed. And I love, uh, I love that uh, set of words there. It's certainly progressive in its perspective. And while Judd writes a great, great deal about politics and public policy, he often focuses on what businesses claim they are doing versus what they are actually doing. And of course, all these topics—business, politics, government, society—are more interwoven than ever. And here's what I tell my students here at Boston University. Regardless of your political perspective and, and, or where you work, and my friends in the industry, popular information is an essential read for any corporate communicator, agency, professional, and communication students. Concise, focused and well-sourced, and and it's impactful. Judd's reporting has resulted in corporate and governmental policy changes. And get this, it has 281,000 subscribers and was the recipient of the 2020 Online Journalism Award for Excellence in Newsletters. We'll talk with Judd today about his newsletter and his view of the state of journalism, with a focus on the role of business and society. Welcome to The Crux, Judd.
1: Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives.
0: Hello, this is Gary
1: Shepherd. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're graduating from Boston University.
2: Well, I as you mentioned in the intro, I had started a a larger uh, media organization that was housed within a nonprofit. It was ca- called the Center for American Progress. Uh, the that that media outlet, Think Progress, is no longer in existence. Center for American Progress is is still out there, one of the larger progressive think tanks in D.C. Uh, but as as that grew uh, and it had it had been successful, we were able to secure funding for it. We had about thirty or thirty five staff I found myself uh, who I'm interested in in reporting and researching and writing all of a sudden I was shuffling papers all day long and dealing with uh, you know administration and helping other people which is which is rewarding in its own right but I found that I wasn't doing what I felt passionate about so I was looking uh, for something where I could get back into the nitty-gritty of of this work uh, and have, you know, full independence to pursue the kind of stories that I wanted to pursue. Whenever you're a part of an organization that puts constraints on you, different kinds of constraints, both explicit and implicit. So, yeah, as you mentioned, Substack was just getting started. And uh, there was a friend of mine uh, named Bill Bishop who, who writes a newsletter about China, uh, completely different from mine. It's a, it's a very uh, well-respected newsletter and, um, he had, he had, I think he was the very first person. So I said, hmm, you know, Bill's a smart guy and he seems to be doing this. So um, maybe I would give it a shot. And so that, that's really what I set out to do. Had no idea if it would work or if it would be a, a job, something that could support myself. <laughs> uh, but it, it has worked out well. And I really uh, enjoy uh, the freedom uh, of, of being an independent journalist and, and working on the stories that, that I think are important.
1: Uh, Judd, welcome to the Crocs, and congratulations on the success of uh, Popular Information. Uh, The name, I think, gives us a clue what the newsletter's goals are, but where did it come from?
2: Well, it came from a quote uh, from 1822 by James Madison, which is, uh, a popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy, or perhaps both. Uh, that is sort of a fancy way of saying that democracy works and it functions when people understand what is going on. Uh, and that's and that's really what I'm trying to do. Uh, there's a lot of very, very good political newsletters that are geared towards a very specific audience. A lot of people who live in the city where I do, in here in Washington, D.C., and to serve their needs as a as a lobbyist or a government affairs person or a congressional staffer, I I try to look at a broader lens and I'm trying to provide um, information that I think is important for the, for the average citizen to know. And that's the reader that, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are in DC and are in that world who probably end up reading it. But when I'm thinking about what topic to choose, that's who I'm thinking about is sort of the, someone who is just an engaged citizen and what they might need to know about that they might not get elsewhere.
1: Now there's lots of information out there and there's certainly lots in, in, in the news, even if, if we sort of consider what's happened in the last week, um, how do you select the topics you write about?
2: I think a few ways. One is when I, when I start in on a topic, uh, I'm looking for a place where I see a gap, where I think that there's either another aspect of the story or the story isn't being told at all. And then once I identify that, I tend to stay with the topic and try to keep following up on it. So unlike um, a number of newsletters, there's not a a super defined specific focus (laughs) in that I will jump around from different topics But there is a a through line, I think, of looking for centers of power, people in positions of power, and trying to expose and hold those folks accountable. Um, So that's what I'm I'm looking for opportunities uh, to do that. And it is challenging. Obviously, you don't want to do something that's derivative. And so part of it is just consuming a lot of news, trying to get an understanding of like what the conversation is out there and figuring out where uh, you can fill a gap.
1: You know, I've really been impressed with uh, a number of your your articles um, and commentary. Uh, what, what really got, caught my eye was about uh, three years ago, kind of on the front end of the pandemic. And in part, it caught my eye because I used to work for a global company and in my tenure there, and I'd been with the company for over six years, uh, but fairly early on in that tenure, I realized that what we tended to do as a company was based on you know, local national law as opposed to having some universal standard. So when you started to write about uh, Darden, which is the owner of Red Lobster, Longhorn Steakhouse, Olive Garden, and a lot of other restaurant chains. Uh, And you took this information about them not offering paid sick leave uh, unless it was required to do so by law. It kind of resonated with me. But uh, you reported that some Olive Garden employees were coming to work sick to avoid uh, missing a shift and a paycheck. Uh, You know, 10 hours after you published your report, Darden announced that all employees would get paid sick leave immediately. Uh, Your reporting had similar. Uh, results uh, relative to sick leave at Kroger's supermarket chain. When I hear those stories, I question why it takes public exposure and shaming, if you will, to get businesses to make these kinds of changes. What do you think of that?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question. Obviously, ideally, you would just have people taking a broader look. At some of these issues, I, I don't think it's necessarily the case that that offering sick leave is going to, you know, I, I doubt that it's had a, a serious impact on on Darden's um, bottom line. Uh, but I think that there is, uh, and I think this is just part of the development of of capitalism over the last twenty or thirty years that, that you, there you have people, executives, who are under a lot of pressure to really maximize, you know, their free cash flow or whatever their their goal is of, of that company, mm-hmm. and so they're they're not looking to do any more than they have to do to to attract uh, employees. Uh, but when you can essentially expose their conduct to the potential customer base, and I think the pandemic was just a really, you know, extreme case of this. People are now going to know that their server at this place, while there's this sort of developed, this was right at the front of the pandemic. so people were still sort of grappling to like what that even meant, uh, including myself. It's not like I knew exactly what it meant. In fact, to report that story, I went out and and ate it at Olive Garden and and talked to people about it. So it wasn't like I I knew exactly what was going on, uh, but I did know that this was something that was, you know, emerging and going to be a concern. Once you expose other customer base, it takes a new perspective because now it's not just an issue of, should we do the right thing, dollars and cents? There's another Part of that scale, which is right. now we have a public relations issue, and what are the costs of people not coming to our restaurant because they now know we have those policies? Uh, and and it, you know, it's not like you can go onto the Darden website and yeah, actually it, find it, out their sickly policy. To report that yeah. story, I had to you know talk to people, and part of the reporting process was really talking to people all across the country because you got to figure out well, what is the policy? Finally, I realized.
1: So, did, so does the so does the story come to you from an employee?
2: I, yes, I initially got a tip from one employee. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, but, but at that point I really didn't know, like, was it just that store were they, what was the corporate policy? So I kind of took it from there, but a lot of people were willing to talk once I was started to ask.
1: Yeah. And and keep in mind, I guess that, I I mean, part of what happens with Rule sets like this, is that it, it might not it might not be that somebody sitting there and saying how can we get every nickel every penny, uh, but I think part of it is. Uh, you're almost attuned. Well, we've got to, we've got to behave to local law, and the challenge then becomes: okay, as a larger company, you need people asking the question. Okay, so do we have a universal standard? Uh, but that said, uh, do you think Gardner or Kroger would have changed without a report like this?
2: There are a lot of companies. That did not change. I, I would have thought at the beginning of the pandemic that maybe mm-hmm. Congress might have said, hey, this is something and you know there were bills proposed. That it's something that should be everywhere. So I'm not sure, but I do think that this kind of public scrutiny is important. Uh, but I also think that the ultimate solutions to these problems are really not going to be uh, solved by kind of this sort of what-off reporting, like I do. Um, they're a window into a larger problem, and they generally involve uh, systemic solutions. But I think if you looked at the overall cost-benefit analysis, these folks who who we you know were referring to and still are essential employees, it'd probably be best for everyone if if they don't come into work into work sick. Uh, Cause they're, they're making other people sick that they're, they're the people who do have the paid sick leave are missing work, you know, probably be better to, to avoid all of that. But, but yeah, I do think it's, 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 impor- it's, I think, think it's an important driver, but also not the ultimate solution to these things. So
0: Judd, this, uh, we had two members of the New York times, two journalists from the New York times on last week talking about business language. It was sort of fun, but it was sort of serious. And, and we talked about shrink, the word shrink, mm-hmm in in retail operations, and it's been in the news quite a bit, and you've written about it. Shrink is, uh, I hope this is uh, the best definition I can find, it's like products that leave the store without getting paid for, and they can leave through shoplifting, employee theft, and other means. So this has been reported uh, in the broader media as a major problem, and some businesses are actually asserting on their earnings reports, their financial reporting, that it's dampening some of their financial results. And, and so you've written about this. That led in California, Governor Gavin Newsom to announce a $267 million plan to fight what he called organized retail crime. That to me implies two things, that shrink was a major problem for retailers in California, and two, it was largely caused by shoplifting. At least that's my takeaway. However, after Newsom's announcement, you investigated retailers' claims about the actual size of the shrink problem. What did your investigation find?
2: A few things. One, if you look at overall shrink, which by the way, mostly isn't shoplifting. Most of it is either through just internal control problems. Like they're just not sure what happened to this because there was the box was supposed to be there and now it's not there or employee theft. So most of it is not outside people coming in, taking stuff, but it's, it's really stayed about the same. uh, According to their own numbers is about 1.4% of, of sales for a decade or more. Uh, So you we're hearing a lot about this, you know, explosion in, in organized retail crime and shoplifting. Uh, and certainly I don't want to diminish it. it, it people are breaking the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, we have laws. Laws are, are important. But as far as a narrative that this is a new big problem that requires huge multi-hundred million dollar investments, the the, inve- the evidence really isn't there. And then, actually, if you try to break it down into organized retail crime, um, these the the trade organizations that represent retailers have stopped even trying to estimate what it is. They have no estimate. They're relying really on on anecdote, and a lot of the it's unclear whether a lot of the things that you know they're that are being proposed to combat this like longer prison sentences or reducing the amount that needs to be stolen for it to be considered a felony are really going to be effective in combating it. So that's really what I've tried to to highlight through some of my reporting. Not very popular line of reporting I will add. I get a lot of people who who uh, you know see shoplifting in their um In their cities, and they write into me and say, "Hey, you've got this totally wrong. This is a huge problem." You know, I guess it's up to everybody to decide whether it's a problem. But I do think that a lot of the coverage takes these claims at at face value. So I'm trying to take a a little more of a critical eye to uh, to the coverage.
0: Well, speaking of that, so after I read your piece on shrink and, and and how you've just described it, I went to the San Francisco. Uh, paper, The Examiner, and how they covered Newsom's Governor Newsom's announcement about this program. And I may have missed something, but it seemed to me it focused almost entirely on whether the cities of San Francisco and Oakland would get their share of funding from this pot of money that was being created. And I'm not looking for you to bash other journalists, but I wonder what that tells us about how traditional news sources or news organizations are covering political and business news?
2: Well, I think it's a tricky issue to cover um, because on some uh, there's some issues where there's, there's folks on, on both sides, right? If you're, if you're covering like mm-hmm. a, a union dispute, for instance, you've got the unions and they're going to, you know, people are covering this Hollywood strike. You've got the unions. They're going to give you their side of the story. You can go to the studios. You'll get their, your side of the story and, and you'll, you know, you'll, you'll have to weigh those and decide which voices to put in, but it's pretty clear how to balance out the story. In a case like shrink, you do have an extremely aggressive, Push on behalf of the retailers, talking about this as a problem, um, and it's very organized. And they're marshaling stories, and they're 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 really the ones who are control of the data. You know, it's hard if you're not CVS to know how much is stolen from a CVS or how much is is come from other causes. And there's really no one on the other side who's saying, uh, "Yeah, this isn't a big problem." I mean, there's no there's no group necessarily. Maybe some criminal justice. Um, reform advocates, but they've got a lot of other things uh, going on uh, to worry about as well. So I think that's part of the problem is that you've got information that's coming in a very sophisticated way um, where people understand how the media works, what reporters need. There's not really necessarily a countervailing force. So if you're going to do that, you've got to kind of take uh, take it on yourself.
1: Well, and it's interesting, too, because then there's this interplay between business and political figures, too, who might look at this issue and say, oh, that gives me yet another platform. I can go talk about this and I can talk about how do we fix this?
2: Yeah. And and as a politician, being tough on crime has always been a very effective place to go. So there's no incentive for Newsom or any other politician to... To question these things, um, but I I just think that we need to have a clear eye about what's going on, and you know the fact is uh, the retailers, the large retailers in this country are in a good financial shape. They're making they're 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 quite profitable, and you know you even had Walgreens who kind of kicked this off uh, because they announced that they were closing several stores. In the San Francisco area. Uh, It was initially reported because of shoplifting, but later they came back and said, you know what? We probably overstated that. We're actually pretty happy with where our shrink is now. And we're going to pare back a lot of the security things that have gone into our stores because we don't think they're really helping. And this isn't as big of a problem as we thought. So, you know, I think that it's a more complicated situation and that we, even if it's not one good thing about me is I'm not running for office. I don't have to worry about whether being tough on crime is a, is a good uh, political position. Or even really, if my, you know, I think I have some readers who appreciate the coverage and others who don't. But I don't have to worry about it too much because I'm diversified. So that's that's what I like about this position. Is I. You know, I write what I think about is important, and sometimes that's you know uh, the popular thing. Sometimes it's not, but I don't. I, you know, I didn't. It's it's all the same to
0: me. But you have run for office, Judd?
2: Yeah, I, I have, and that's why I that's why I got out of that because it's a tough, it's a very tough thing to do. So so, so 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 what did you run for? I ran for state delegate. Um, this was when I was practicing law, and about uh, it was you know, well, 2010 was the election, but you know, it's a couple year uh, process, so. I learned a lot from that, you know. I locked, knocked on a lot of doors and talked to people, and kind of I think I think back on that time a lot. But yeah, uh, what I one thing I realized after I lost was that like, hey, uh, I don't like trying to figure out what people want to hear. Uh, you know, I don't like trying to be popular um, broadly, rather be someplace and, where and, I can say just say what I think.
1: And did you and, and did you think about running yet again for another office?
2: <sighs> Not too long, <laughs> you know. I, I was really into it. I was really into it when I was yeah. when it was happening. Uh, you know, I was really like I really wanted to win. You know, and I, I thought I knew a lot about how to run. And I you know I think I ran a, a a credible campaign. I, I did make it through the primary. You know, it's it's tough because you've got people with lots of different views, and, and you're trying to get all of them on your side. And you know, I tried to stay true to myself, uh, yeah. but I don't think it's a a vocation that really rewards uh, you know, kind of being.
1: Well, being at true. a juncture, at a, yeah, at a juncture like this is where uh, the U S Senator I worked for years ago, Fritz Hollings, yeah. uh, he, he would likely say, well, you know, there's, there's no sense of the second kick of a mule. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but since we're on <laughs> politics, let's talk a little bit about political and cultural wars. Um, you've, You've reported uh, on uh, the book bans in Florida with Governor Ron DeSantis and with public libraries and schools and the like. Uh, You were among the first reporting the details how these uh, bans really misrepresent uh, the books uh, and the authors. Um, So uh, does it frustrate you that more journalists uh, really haven't covered sort of the inside trick on this story in the sense that you know it's like we accept what people say on one side we accept what people say on the other side but that that really slightly inve- it's not even it's not even a big investigative thing to try and understand what's actually in these books
2: yeah uh- I I don't think I'm frustrated by it. I I think I understand, you know, I'm I'm looking for stories like this because it's basically a kind of story where uh, the complexity is part of what is trying to be, you know, kind of manipulated as far as how the position, how the issue is presented to the public by politicians. And you know, people know, you could say, hey, look, there's pornography in schools. And I think most people would say, "Uh, yeah, there shouldn't be pornography in elementary schools. But it's very time consuming. It's not difficult. It's not a big investigative, you know, puzzle to to solve. Mm -hmm. But it's time consuming to actually track down, well, what is it that they are getting rid of? And what's in these books? And who is behind all? things. I think that tells you as much as the books themselves. And so, yeah, just that process. um, I'm interested in it. I think that's, I I think my, my primary, you know, reaction is not necessarily frustration, uh, but I just think, oh, here's something, this is, this is interesting. And this is something that, you know, I can maybe move the ball forward a little bit with this story and help people, um, understand it a bit more. And I focus a lot on Florida. I've done, I've done a few other uh, states as well, but I, I think these local stories, um, there's so much there, even though, you know, I'm not a Florida, Florida publication. And you know, there's people who yeah. read in Florida, but most of the people <laughs> are outside of Florida, but people have really connected with that story. Cause one, it's going on everywhere and it touches into this larger, you know, as you introduced this kind of culture war that's playing out across all different in all different kind of arenas so
1: yeah well it's like we we want to we want to keep our children safe on one level but on the other you start to wonder okay so what are we really protecting them from you know, and there's a certain element that's about life. I'm, I'm, And I should confess up front, I'm one of those people that is like to wear the T-shirt that I'm with the band, mm-hmm. B-A-N-N-E-D. Um, and uh, give us some of your the most egregious examples, you think, in terms of some of these books that uh, they've gone after.
2: Uh, there's so many, but, you know, there was one I think one of the recent ones I wrote, uh, I wrote, I wrote about. Uh, a book called Arthur's, uh, birthday party. I think he's like a hedgehog or something like that. And, uh, you know, it's just, like an aardvark, right? <laughs> yeah, aardvark. That's right. That's right. Aardvark, uh, you know, and it's just this very, it's for very little kids. It's a very straightforward picture book about uh, an aardvark and some of his other animal friends having a birthday party. Um, at one point, one of the animals asked the play, spin the bottle. Uh, and they they do play spin. They they don't show anyone kissing or anything like that. They just are playing uh-huh. spin the bottle, uh, and that was you know challenged as as pornographic, uh, and yeah. so, and, and and a lot of schools are taking these books off the shelves. Um, well, there are classics like
1: Huckleberry Finn that yeah. show up on some of these lists.
2: Yeah, and, and
0: go ahead, Judd.
1: No, I was just going to
2: say, but I do think that there is. You know, I don't know if there's really necessarily a huge impact that you know some students don't have access to to Arthur's birthday, uh, but it is a serious issue because I think a lot of these bands are really targeting uh, books that have representations of either you know minority characters mm-hmm. and their experiences or LGBTQ characters in their experiences. You know, librarians. Generally, school librarians generally get into this business because they care deeply about children. It's not a real easy way to fame and fortune. Yeah. You know, these are people <laughs> who are really just devoted their lives hard. to just yeah. trying to expose yeah. kids to, to books. Uh, I think the last thing any one of them are going to do is give them a book that is going to be detrimental to them uh, in any way. So, um, it, it's. I think it's really unfortunate that how much librarians are being targeted uh, today and so that's that's part of what motivates me to stay on the story is just thinking about them because i want the the facts about what they're doing what kind of books are being targeted um to get out
0: thank you for tuning in to this episode of the crux on the crux we discuss the intersection of communications business and society follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Okay. Uh, So, Judd, I'd like to focus our last few questions on some of the business reporting you've done, at least about companies. One of the things we always say in PR is your um, do has to match your say. In other words, you better do what you say or, or people will um, lose trust in you, lose faith, uh, both employees, people inside the company, people outside the company. And you've written about companies that, for example, have pledged not to make financial contributions to legislators, members of Congress who supported overturning the 2020 election. You've written about companies who celebrate uh, Gay Pride Month on their websites and in their marketing, et cetera, but who then donate to politicians who oppose equal rights for LGBTQ plus people. One of the things I always ask my students to do with your work is to see how companies respond to that, what they say in response to what you're pointing out uh, factually. What do most companies? How do they respond, Judd, when you contact them about these issues?
2: Well, it's a right. I'd say the most common response is nothing, <laughs> you know, just not responding, and sort of hoping that it goes away. Sometimes that's effective. You know, a lot of times, uh, especially if I'm doing a story that's about a, do- a you know a pattern of donations that may contradict you know, these stated policy positions. A company will say that, you know, they don't agree with politicians on every issue just because they're donating to them uh, doesn't mean that they're endorsing their position on every issue. Um, so that's, I think, a fairly typical uh, typical response. Probably the next, I'll, I'll just end there, probably the next most typical response is some sort of timing. You know, if they, they can kind of try to maybe... I say, you know, if I'm talking about, you know, a politician who maybe said something uh, objectionable at a certain point, they would say, oh, well, the the received by date says this, but actually we sent the check on this date. So it was before they made that comment. That That's another fairly difficult one. So, yeah, there's a lot of different, different responses. Of course, occasionally uh, people will uh, actually say that they're going to change their policies. But that's that's uh, not necessarily uh, something that comes easily to, to to corporations that you know have cultivated a relationship with a politician
1: <laughs> so judge you wrote this past week kind of in this vein about companies that say they're uh, they're helping to fight child hunger um, can you tell us about that story
2: yeah you know it's one thing that I noticed um, and I actually have a this is sort of like a backstory, but I have a friend of mine who, who works for this organization. But there's a lot of, um, and, and, and by the way, she didn't put me onto this, so I don't want to I don't want to uh, imply that. But there's a lot of organizations that um, partner with a charity called No Hungry Kids, that is a very ex- extremely <laughs> admirable charity that tries to make sure that kids have enough to eat. Um, and so there's companies like Citibank um, that partner with them. Uh, and, and end up donating, you know, millions of dollars, either directly or sometimes like Citibank has a thing where if you charge a certain amount, a percentage will be go back to this companies you can feel good about using their card. Um, and so what this piece was about was that many of those companies, pretty much all of them, uh, through these trade organizations, principally the Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable, opposed... Uh, the extension of the expanded child tax credit, which was in place in 2021. And the reason why this kind of came to mind was we've now got the data of 20, we just got the data for 2022 of what happened to child poverty when they rolled this back. And it more than doubled 5% to over 12%. And, you know, that's a direct consequence of it not being extended i believe the corporate lobbying campaign was was a very important part of that uh, principally because the issue of the child tax credit did not used to be partisan you know it was actually one of if, if you go back and you look at george w bush's top accomplishments you know the list that his administration puts together one of them is expanding the child tax credit he about doubled it i think from 500 to a thousand at the time because it had appealed to republicans as part of kind of a pro-family um policy mm-hmm. obviously also as also has appeal to, to, to Democrats as well. Um, so, but corporations really lined up against it. And, and the point was that the impact on kids was exponentially higher, you know, billions and billions of dollars, millions of kids into poverty where they're going to face food insecurity versus large, but relatively minor contributions to, to these charities that are going after the same issue.
1: And you had made the point that Kellogg's had been supportive of this fight against uh, hunger, this fight against (laughs) hunger related to children, and then they are members of the U.S. Chamber, which in turn lobbied against um, uh, sustaining the federal. Uh, child tax credit, and and I guess, you know, one of the challenges is, as I think about various companies I've worked for through the years, you have kind of trade affiliations of various kinds, and because those trade associations represent a multiplicity, and in this case with the Chamber, lots of different industries, um, how do you make the case that Kellogg's somehow has a problem unless Kellogg's itself came out against the federal child tax credit.
2: Well, I think it's you know, I think you can argue that there's not a problem, but I think at some point the conflict between what you're doing and and the lobbying becomes too much to bear. and much of the lobbying is done through the trade organizations and not through the individual companies. I mean these these are you know chamber of commerce business roundtable are, are the are some of the largest and most powerful forces in in politics. And I think you've seen this play out on climate issues mm-hmm. where you have had many, many corporations who have said they have these aggressive climate goals. Um, the chamber uh, is still heavily influenced by, um, you know, large fossil fuel companies, and there have been some companies, uh, Apple, uh, I believe uh, is one of them, uh, and others who have dropped out of the chamber as a result of that, because they just didn't think that they could be part of an organization that's, you know, lobbying against the policies on climate they can, that that they support. So, you know, it's not necessarily the case that, you know, Kellogg's has to read the story and and drop out of of the chamber, but I think that Right the, the, the well,
1: well, I, i'm I move, yeah, I'm moved somewhat by the fact that, like you, have worked for a number of democratic uh, political mm-hmm. figures. and they um, and I probably have agreed with them on eighty, ninety percent, but there are very few people that I find that I agree with a hundred percent of the time. Um, and, and and so then the challenge becomes, okay, so, and where's that line of demarcation so that we're not being part of the problem that's polarizing everything?
2: That That's true, but I think one of the things that's happened, uh, and this is part of maybe the, I, I don't really report this in my newsletter, but is maybe a through line that goes unstated, yeah. is that I believe that these uh, trade organizations, which were set up to represent their, the constituent businesses, um, have become uh, politicized and pursue a more ideological agenda as opposed to representing the businesses that are, that form their constituents. So if the chamber was really to pursue a policy on say climate that was somewhere in the meat You know the the median view of their membership or anywhere approximating it you would have a much different you know they would be in a much different place um than they are and there's a lot of very strange things like happening for instance as the business roundtable was lobbying against um the you know biden's build back better plan which had these big investments in climate Mary Barra was going to the White House sort of in support of the same bill that when she was leading organization that was also opposing it. Right. So I think there's a lot of kind of tension there that yeah. I'm trying to sort of explore. But I, I do take your point. You know, you it's not if you're if you're in a group with a bunch of, of folks. You're not necessarily going to agree on on every single thing, um, but I I think overall there is very little scrutiny of these very powerful trade organizations because and part of it is because it is really difficult to assign responsibility to any um, consumer facing company.
0: Yeah. And for our listeners, Mary Barra is the CEO of GM. Um, which is making a, a big move into electric vehicles, of course, as are most automakers. Last question, and it sort of extends this conversation, Judd, that we just had. Is your you um, say um, you know quite publicly that you're a progressive, and and I wonder how that guides your point of view in your journalism. You know, and, and I have great respect for folks who have a point of view in their journalism, ProPublica, for example. If you're a corporate communicator, Judd, and ProPublica shows up at your doorstep, it's probably not good, right? Right? So how does your progressive view of the world, how does that um, guide your journalism?
2: You know, I think it guides it um, mostly through the topics that I select and the things that I think are important to cover. I think those are rooted in my political values. Um, you know, once I get to a story, though, I, I do feel an obligation to present the facts to people and to seek out the the folks that I'm criticizing and, and at least give them an opportunity to to respond. And I'll generally print However, long a response you know they want to provide, unless it goes you know unless someone's going to send me three <laughs> pages or something like that, and they might have to cut it down. <laughs> but um, but that's how I think it. That's how I think it guides it. You know, that's where you know my response to the you know when I'm looking at the pandemic, I'm thinking about okay, well, who are the people who are going to be impacted on this? Who who is maybe being overlooked? You know, I think that's a reflection of some of my kind of political sensibilities about who you know, what needs to be prioritized. And then, and then once I get there, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to, you know, maintain a, a fidelity uh, to the facts. Certainly there's a lot of stories that, that I get a good tip and it sounds good and, and I pursue <laughs> and I'm, I'm calling people. And then you end up having to just throw it on the scrap heap because you're like, actually, this wasn't, this isn't a, a big deal. This this turned out not to be, not to be true. So I think that's how it does. You know, I really put that in there because I, feel like I want to be transparent and I don't want people to think of this as you know that that there is no ideological basis for it because then they can take it and I think over the years I've built up you know a a number of conservative readers as well (laughs) and they can read it and they can understand where I'm coming from and then they can use that information to to you know make their own own conclusions and and I've had a I've had some really great um made some really great relationships with with conservative readers and and having an interaction with them and so I, and I think being transparent about where I'm coming from helps that
0: terrific well judge this has been fascinating uh, I'm a 4 day a week reader I'm a, a big fan and as I say I think it's an important work um, particularly given the declining resources that we see in other areas of journalism particularly locally Um, and creating news deserts, as they call them these days. So Judd, how do people, if they want to find popular information, how how might they find it?
2: The easiest way is just to go to popular.info.
0: Popular.info. Okay.
2: You can also go to popularinformation.com. I was able to acquire that a couple of years after I launched it, but I use (laughs) popular.info still because I think that it is easy to remember. Excellent. it's distinct.
0: It's distinct. Thank you, Judd. And uh, again, thanks to our listeners. Mike and I will be back next week with another episode of The Crux of the Story. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Crux. And make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.